Hi everyone, my name is Andreas Feiner and I would like to welcome you to our podcast, Important Problems. Together with my wonderful guests, we will address urgent problems such as sustainability, nature and mental health and how we can tackle them. Our aim is to show you that everyone can solve important problems. Hello everyone. Today we are meeting Daniel Seiler. Daniel is a fascinating professional. He started his work um, at a local savings bank and he's now the head of sustainability at Metzler Asset Management. We touched on various topics from the modularity of Metzler's investment approach up until um, data problems, where to get data from. And we are also talking about uh, proxy voting and active ownership. So really interesting discussion that we had. And without further ado, um, I will leave you now. Um, enjoy this podcast. Um, hit the button, like and share it. Um, this helps us to bring the message out that important problems need solving and not normal. Have a good one. Thank you so much and enjoy. Hi, Daniel. Um, it's a great pleasure to meet you in the Important Problems uh, podcast. Um, we've been in contact for a couple of years already. Um, I deeply respect your work. Um, so it's, it's really nice to have you here today to introduce you to our listeners. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you, Andy. Um, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so my name is Daniel. I'm the head of the System Investment Office at Metzler Asset Management. And um, for those who don't know Metzler Asset Management, it's a part of the Metzler Bank. And uh, Metzler Bank is Germany's oldest private bank with an unbroken tradition um, of family ownership. So the company was founded in 1674. So we are celebrating our 350 years anniversary next year. Um, and it's a, a special place to be, especially when you think about sustainability, which is in the end um, thinking about the future and um, preserving also capital and wealth um, for the next generations to come. That's amazing. And uh, uh, for the ones who do not know that, um, I was with Metzler for three and a half years as well. So uh, same office um, on the asset management side. So just a little bit of a time gap. Uh, in between. So, so I know the place, place very well and, and great people. There's still a lot of people that I met uh, are still with Metzler. So it's, it's really something that is for the long term. Would you like to talk a little bit about your, yourself, you know, like how you got there? I guess, you know, what is interesting is, uh, is you know, why did you take certain decisions? Um, was it all meant to be or was it more um, like uh, uh, um, it just, you know, came about as it was? Um, so how did you end up where you are now? So I think um, the interesting part is that I don't have really a, a track record in sustainability, right? I'm really impressed by some of your participants in other podcasts who somehow were engaged in uh, politics and other sustainability matters really in their childhood. So when I grew up, um, sustainability was never a topic in my family. It was never a topic at school or when I studied economics. And um but what was a topic somehow for me personally is saving money. So I'm, I'm, I've grown up in a part of Germany, in the southern part of Germany, where you somehow always get taught by your parents, save for the future, save for your driver license, save for your car. So I saved and um, I was 
and really, really happy when I got the three or four percent interest rates. And I was surprised, right? What, what is the bank actually doing with the money I'm taking there? And um, then, when I was around 14 years, I think this is one of two really major events. I started uh, to watch uh, NTV, a German uh, news channel which was somehow the first who, who broadcasted live from the German stock exchange. So, and there is a, a blue band at the bottom and there you would see the daily um, quotes of companies, right? If they have increased or decreased in terms of value. And I always ask myself, I get 3% annually. And now if I would have invested in a stock, I would really get three or 4% within a day. So somehow this distracted me and I did an internship with 15 years, um, when I was 15 years old, at the local savings banks. And again, the, the advisor confirmed, open up a brokerage account, buy stocks and you can get 3% um, a day. So then this was somehow the starting point for me to read the newspaper on a daily basis to really get everything I can get my hand on when it comes to capital markets, the economy. So it was very natural for me to start um, economics and finance, learn everything about accounting, monetary policy, and um, what else you have. And um, But still, it was a, a, a tough time because in the end, when I finished school, it was in the year 2003, the DAX and the German stock exchange collapsed from 8,000 points to 2,500 points. So it was not the best environment for studying economics and having a wish to become maybe a portfolio manager in the future. And then even when I was finished with my studies in 2007, um, it was also not, not the best time in terms of market conditions. But um, still, uh, this was close to my heart and I started um, at, a, at a large German public bank in the equities um, division and um, had a, started in a, in a classical sales role. We were selling capital market products to family offices, um, other asset managers, uh, insurance companies in Germany and Austria. And being in a sales position, I think at this point in time was the most rewarding to me because I always wanted to, to see really the impact I have. Right? When I stand up today, I do something and you're in the sales or you know in the evening what you have done, right? what kind of contribution you have given in terms of just uh, financial numbers. Right? Um, so still no, no sustainability, no ESG anywhere at this point in time. And then um, I got the opportunity in 2010. So actually um, when, very, when I was uh, 31, and actually 27. So when I was 27, I got the, the opportunity to join MSCI. So MSCI is known for their equity indices. It was a spinoff from Morgan Stanley. So they uh, had an IPO um, shortly before I joined the company. It was still very small, uh, only a few offices around the globe. And um, the manager had a lot of trust in me and uh, handed over to me uh, the territory of Nordic countries. So I was responsible for selling the, the equity index franchise to Scandinavian investors, again, pension funds, insurance companies, banks. Um, and this was another big step. And mm -hmm. uh, also in the beginning, I wasn't really sure if I should do that because I'm not a native English speaker. Okay. I have never traveled to Scandinavia. <laughs> um, I, I didn't understand why anybody should buy any kind of indices and how to use them. Uh, but um, this was, again, it was... Um, something really rewarding because in the end uh, I traveled a lot, uh, I learned many smart people and um, this was then also I would say the second most important event because here I shortly then got in contact with um, the ESG topic as such. So mm -hmm. I would say around um, 
around um, yeah 2012-2013, there was um, the opportunity with a Swedish insurance company who told me, Daniel, look, ESG is the core of what we do Mm -hmm. um, in our business, and all of our investments should be ESG aligned. Mm -hmm. So we developed um, an ESG benchmark framework for them, Mm -hmm. and um, I got in contact with kind of ESG exclusion criteria, ESG ratings, and what else you have. Mm -hmm. And um, so this was the beginning, and um, then um, MSCI took over also around that time another company with with more and more ESG products. Mm -hmm. and. the, there was a demand for having a, a salesperson covering just ESG research and not only the index products. Mm-hmm. So I moved from the index division to the to the ESG research division. And here again, I was also not sure if I should do that because purely from a, let's say, a market perspective, we haven't had really massive clients anywhere, mm-hmm. right? So as the managers were telling me, um, we don't have a use case. Um, there is no demand in the marketplace. Yeah. Um, so why should you sell a product nobody wants to have? So I, I stop here. Yeah. That was a bit of a long <laughs> journey to, to, to the ESG and sustainability uh, topic. But that's amazing. I mean, I can vividly remember where I met you the first time. It was in London um, uh, at, uh, um, at the Tower Hotel um, at the Responsible Investor Conference. You know, when we set up um, our mm. own firm, Arabesque, and, you know, um, you've been the sales professional, um, you know, covering Arabesque. And, and I can only, mm. you know, say from, from my experience, you know, you're probably in the top 2% of uh, kind of, you know, sales professionals that, um, that I've ever encountered. So, so it was really interesting to see. And then how you also made your way, you know, like you, as far as I could see, you know, you got fast-tracked in, in every promotion that was possible. And then um, you ended up in, uh, you know, taking the job at Metzler. So probably you can just like uh, another couple of sentences and then we can, uh, you know, switch to the next topic. Yeah, absolutely. So um, sometimes you can get lost in the memories. <laughs> um, so um, actually, the the point when I first um, met um, employees from Metzler was in 2015, mm-hmm. because um, I had been invited to a beauty contest um, and I won this, this beauty contest with, with the ESG Research franchise. And what was really different in this kind of pitch compared to, to the others I, I had around um, these early days of ESG investment is that Metzler was telling me, we don't want um, to set up a new ESG fund. Mm-hmm. Com- compared to others, we want to integrate it across everything we do because we feel that ESG data is additional data which can help you to do a better informed investment decision. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it, you are not really. It's not like um, you are credible if you have an equity fund where you do what you want to do, mm-hmm. and you have another ESG equity fund where you do, have an ESG framework. Yeah. Um, and that that was really. Uh, compelling and um, like, like you said there were many very friendly people working at Metzler we stayed in contact and then in 2019 the co-CIO called me up and said look we want to step up even our efforts in terms of ESG do we want to join Metzler mm-hmm. and um, it was then an, an easy decision to say after nearly nine years at MSCI I'm, I'm changing the ship and want to see um, how ESG data can be really used in a portfolio management context. Yeah, it's super interesting. So, so thank you so much, um, you know, for this journey. It's super interesting and, you know, we'll be watching you the next couple of decades as well. Um, but let's switch gears and, uh, you know, get into the second uh, piece of the, of the podcast. Usually this is where people then say, okay, well, what are the solutions 
uh, or the problems that are there that are needing solution. And um, the the general goal here is to, you know, show to the people the world is not perfect, but there are people out there that, you know, acknowledge a problem and then, you know, work on finding a solution rather than, you know, moaning about it. So um, that's kind of the core of the podcast in and of itself. So, so where do you feel um, that we have a problem and, and what are potential solutions and what's your contribution? So in the end, we are, we have a fiduciary duty, right, to our clients. So we want to help our clients to achieve their financial goals and simultaneously take into account their sustainability preferences and goals. Mm -hmm. And they're often really different, right? The, an insurance company might have different sustainability goals mm -hmm. compared to a family office or compared to a faith-based um, investor. Mm -hmm. So it's in the end then our ambition to deliver the highest quality in the way we integrate ESG in the way we report on it and in the way we advise um, our clients. Mm -hmm. And um, in the end, we, we see quite recently, I would say over the last um, one or two years, that ESG is, going, is becoming more mature and um, that investors see more and more also the, the conflicts of interests which might come with it, right? Mm -hmm. So let me give you an example. Uh, did you know, Andy, that 98% of the components to build a windmill are cement, aluminium, and steel? So yeah. we have many, many investors who come to us and say, we want to reduce the carbon footprint of our portfolio. Mm -hmm. So it would be then very easy to take out anything related to those high carbon intensity industries, but we would not achieve um, the net zero goal or the transformation by not funding those industries because you need them to build up the solutions. Well, that's just one example. Another mm -hmm. example I really like or find very interesting is that, um, do you know what kind of company or from which industry the company is, which has at the moment the by far largest pipeline in terms of new solar projects in the US? What would be your, your guess, Andy? I mean, in, in the way that you ask, it's probably whatever Chevron or you know some oil company. So it's a, it's a European um, energy company. Actually, it's from France, but it shows that an energy company from France is building the largest capacity in terms of solar in the US. So we, we can't live without the energy sector mm. and we the energy sector needs to be transformed as well. Mm. So therefore, we have those conversations with, with clients. We make it very transparent and we build frameworks to, to achieve the goals, but still follow the kind of purpose to identify in every industry the leaders which have a, a credible pathway. Um, and I think that that's the, the, the biggest challenge. And also yeah. when you take a look into last years where certain sectors had a rally and other sectors don't. Mm. But if I can just, you know, get into this, you know, like you mentioned, um, you know, windmills and that there's a lot of steel and cement in there. Um, I hear that, uh, you know, that remark quite often, but, you know, there is studies out there and I don't have them at hand at the moment um, that there is still, you know, within a very brief time, you know, the, the, the energy or the, the, the CO2 saved through the a windmill is, you know, outperforming, you know, the CO2 emitted while producing it. So from that perspective, you know, sometimes um, kind of that argument is used even, you know, like uh, our windmills don't work as well, you know, that why don't we just stick with mm. what we have? So, so um, I assume this is not the, the thing that you said, but you said, okay, well, we, we cannot not invest into pe uh, companies that, you know, produce steel and cement. Did I understand that right? Exactly. So the idea is that we need to build um, massive capacities in terms of renewable energy. And we also need 
the the products to to build uh, the the capacities mm. right and um if we now would take away the funding from cement and aluminium and steel companies mm. the cost of capital would increase mm -hmm. and we are now in an environment of a high inflation so the transformation would become even more expensive than it is already right so we would need more investments mm -hmm. um to to achieve our goals if we if we now start uh, within our uh, liquid portfolios mm -hmm. to exclude certain industries because as of today they um, some of the companies started later than others mm. but uh, we need to find a way to to take every sector um, on board and mm. um, and help them to to decarbonize in the long run okay then i just wanted to clear that up you know because sometimes yeah. this argument is you know used uh, for a different purpose which you know sometimes yeah. infuriates me so i just wanted to make sure yeah. that yeah, no. um, the other thing is you know like just a shout out to ThyssenKrupp. i mean they are completely transforming the business uh, into green steel um, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, I met, uh, um, the professional who's, who's kind of, you know, in charge of this, you know, a couple of months ago and, and, you know, also toured the, the site in Duisburg. And it's just amazing how you mm -hmm. kind of rebuild this whole thing, um, with 20 million tons of CO2 emissions, um, at the moment per year, which is, I think, 4% of Germany or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. so it is just remarkable doing doing this, you know, big transformation. So big shout out to, to Sikup. and yes, we need their products. Um, but we need them in a different way, and they they have acknowledged that. Um, yeah, the uh, the other topic that you mentioned with um, the energy companies, yes, energy companies are transforming themselves, and you know we cannot not invest into them. And I think you know the the black or white view is probably also not um, you know the right approach. Um, there are many yeah. approaches, and for some it is the correct one, and and for some not. I don't want to even judge on that. But to me, you know, I I think I stand on your side on this one, but. How do you actually, you know, um, you know, uh, tell the good ones from the bad ones? Because obviously there's a lot happening in the energy companies. They're still drilling a lot of gas and oil, um, you know, in, in a world where we believe we can actually reduce the climate, uh, 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 you know, the climate change or, you know, can fight climate change. It's not reducing it. Um, then, uh, you know, who do you basically, you know, favor over the others and what are your methodologies yeah. to find that out? Yeah. Absolutely, that's an important part. So, on the one hand, um, we are extremely transparent about what we do. Right? Uh, since uh, 2019, we offer to our clients, but also to the public, ESG reports on every strategy. So, you would see how our carbon footprint looks like and um, other mm -hmm. ESG credentials. We introduced the uh, a climate policy so where we say here's the the second line of defense so we would not invest in certain activities across everything we would do but mm. um like um, the area of, of fracking so there are certain companies you will never find in any kind of our portfolios mm. because they are from the energy sector and they are involved in this controversial activity um but this is just the beginning right i think the 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 challenge is to have the right data and the assessment of the companies but also not only to rely on data because we are an active manager um, our portfolio managers have around 100 company meetings or more per year and they they often get also by meeting those companies informations on about technologies or new products they will introduce to the market in three or five years times mm -hmm. right so there are many 
Um, there's, for example, one company we have in the terms of construction materials sector. They are today testing new technologies which will help them to produce their product without uh, carbon emissions, while by, for example, um, using green hydrogen. Mm. So you would not see today in the data, in the already today very high carbon intensity, that they will very rapidly be able to decarbonize by applying this kind of technology, which is yet not on the market. Mm. So you don't find these kind of, you get it only by one-on-one -on -one meetings with, with the company. But um, but when we look into the data we have available on the marketplace from, from rating agencies, from NGOs and others, mm -hmm. we still also don't find the right tools because you have an ESG rating, which mm. has a different purpose. ESG ratings often measure just your um, risk management approach or your exposure to certain risks. Mm -hmm. um, you have kind of climate ratings in the marketplace from mm -hmm. agencies. They are not often very transparent. So mm -hmm. you don't understand as an ESG office or as a portfolio manager mm. what needs to be changed in, at the company to improve the rating. It, it's simply not possible. Mm. Um, what we like and also introduced a few years ago is the concept of an kind of, we call it implied temperature-wise. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a model where you have the carbon budget of a company mm -hmm. and you compare it with its future emissions. Mm -hmm. And um, then you can calculate um, the temperature um, the company has. So if the whole world would consist of this portfolio, mm -hmm. you understand uh, the, the temperature-wise compared to the pre-industrial levels. But still, um, this, this metric is, is, is interesting because it looks into the future. It takes into account your carbon reduction target mm -hmm. and your carbon budget, mm -hmm. but it still does not take it really into account the kind of products you have, the kind of governance mm -hmm. around the topic, right? You want to understand is somebody in the board responsible for, for climate change mm -hmm. and the, the transition strategy. So we therefore developed an in-house in scoring um, where we also actually got help from PwC because we were part of the Pathways to Paris initiative mm -hmm. um, where WWF and PwC consulted with the market, built up um, scenarios and indicators for industries, but also more kind of general indicators which should help as a kind of starting point for companies to to determine the, their their pathway, mm -hmm. so we use some of their indicators and some others, and um, built our own uh, transformation score where we look into best practices in terms of management, in terms of engagement, mm -hmm. in terms of decarbonization and transparency. Mm -hmm. And now we have a framework where we have a score for every company. Mm -hmm. We have twenty three KPIs, and we can really understand what is driving the improvement mm -hmm. um, or or not. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. And and you mentioned Pathways to Paris, you know, um, with yeah. the WWF. And, and for the for the listeners who do not know that, um, there is uh, the link in the show note. Um, so you can have a look at that. Um, and it's basically, you know, about 90 companies came together from the banking and from the industrial services industries, or also financial services and industrial. It's not only banks, it's fund managers and others. Um, to think about, you know, what is a good metric or what are good metrics for various, you know, industries and, you know, how to decarbonize those. And so banks, investment managers and others can use those and, and ask companies for information about that. And um, and obviously, um, you know, since PwC was involved in that, and PwC has just launched the Dataland initiative. Um, 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 you know, this is also what you can find on that. Um, so anybody who is interested in Pathways to Paris and actually trying it, trying it out, um, there will be a couple of links in the show notes um, where you can have a look at that. Um, but, you know, that probably leads me to, to the next question. Where do you get all of that information for that, you know, transformation 
indications. Um, where do you mm. get that from at the moment? Yeah. So at the moment we, we use data from CDP, mm -hmm. so the Carbon Disclosure Project. We also use data from, from our ESG research provider, MSCI. Mm -hmm. we, we, we cross-check the data if it's reported or estimated. Mm -hmm. um, we try obviously to just use um, reported data, but we, for example, also use scope three emissions. Mm -hmm. And as many listeners might know, uh, most of the part is then, then estimated. Mm -hmm. So we, we continuously look for, for new data sources, um, especially to get more reported data. Mm -hmm. And obviously there, there is a lack and um, a demand for some kind of central architecture. Mm -hmm where everybody can dog on and get the, the, the data from the companies. And ideally, obviously, this is very closely linked to what audit companies like PwC is doing because you are by far closer to the companies than also many research providers are because, I mean, the, the biggest challenge, and still I'm, I'm mentioning this nearly in every second meeting I have, is mm. that the ESG data is so outdated. Mm -hmm. right? Not Nobody knows that the carbon footprint we report or the industry is reporting mm -hmm. for investments is two years old. Mm. Right? It's, right. it's the carbon emissions from last year, from the sustainability report from the year 2001. Mm. And that so much has changed over the last two years. Mm. So, But but we rely on this kind of data to measure your, your, your reduction purpose and mm. goal. So again, we need more timely data, more more reported data, and it needs to be um, easy to, to access. And if you can, you know, like uh, just, you know, build the perfect infrastructure to organize that data, what would it look like? I mean, in the end, we, we see that you have kind of an API technology, right, where you, as your, your server automatically sends a request for certain data points. Mm. You have a company ISIN, you have a factor, like let's take scope three carbon emissions, mm. you have a factor reported or not, and then you send a request to, to the, to the server and you get the response. And, um, this is what what we have set up. If the if our partners have this kind of API framework in place, mm -hmm. many don't, um, and um, it would would be helpful, obviously, to have this um, for 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 the universe on the, the most relevant indicators, mm -hmm. and especially to to have more kind of opportunities to use reported data, but also maybe to engage more with companies. Mm -hmm. right? if, if every asset manager would push the companies to report on the KPIs we can all agree upon, mm -hmm. they all would, and they would happily do that because, I mean, I'm meeting many companies on conferences and in one-on-ones, and they all, mm -hmm. many of them tell me, especially the small caps, mm -hmm. and um, we have a, a very strong footprint in terms of small cap investing. Mm -hmm. They are they are overwhelmed with the requests they get from not only ESG rating agencies, from NGOs, from everyone. So yeah. they, they can't even handle all the requests. Every company wants to have just one single place where they publish everything and everybody can take it from there. And mm -hmm. um, that would, would be a massive um, win for efficiency for also many investor relations departments or CSR departments of companies. Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, you know, this is like the same as we hear, obviously, from our customers as well. And we as, you know, PwC buying data a lot, we would love to have that as well. You know, because no matter what business we are in, you know, is it the auditing? We need some benchmarking data. Um, is it, you know, helping our customers to understand their business better or to decarbonize their, uh, their, their, their operations? You need some data, um, you know, from other companies as well to, to basically, you know, show how they do in comparisons with others. So, so I think we're all on the same page here. And um, there are a couple of data monopolies and oligopolies out there um, that at the moment, to my mind, you know, are using you know, that um, 
that situation to their advantage, which is, you know, good business. You know, I would probably do the same. But if you sit at the other side of the table, um, you know, you need to think about different, uh, about different approaches, which is obviously what yeah. PwC has been doing over the last couple of months. And, um, but uh, that is still to come in the future, and um, we won't spoil it too much here. Many also in the market underestimate still the work you need to put into place right, to deliver such a service. So you are right, ESG data is expensive from the ESG mm. rating agencies, but there is also an added value they have. Mm. Right? They distribute it to hundreds of vendors. Right? We need ESG data on Bloomberg. We need it in other kind of applications. You need to clean it. You need to map it to identifiers. Sure. Right? If you want today, you want to use an ISIN, you need to pay somebody else for using the ISIN. Um, you want to have other applications, infrastructures, especially mm. if, you, for example, invested to fixed income. You want to have an understanding in the whole parent and child tree of a company, right? Mm. And you want to map down ESG IDs. If now tomorrow mm. a new bond is issued, you want to ensure that in your system, the bond is visible and every ESG data point is, is mapped to it, right? So there is um, a lot of thing which is beneath the surface mm. um, besides just calculating an ESG score. And um, but but I mean you're right. The the, the added value I think ESG research mm -hmm. agencies will have in the future is, is really the methodology because that's something which is really um, which should not be underestimated as well. It's not about mm -hmm. only the raw data. It's really to have a framework which is very dynamic. And for example, every year in mm -hmm. the materiality assessment, you need to check again. For example, in which industry is health and safety and topic? Right? You you would mm -hmm. rank all industries yeah. and would see okay. Um, in the mining industry, mm. many people get injured. So health and safety should have a higher weight than maybe in the retail um, industry. So this kind of work needs to be done. And um, some large organizations might do it mm -hmm. internally. Some smaller um, organizations need to rely on, on service provider to do with the kind of methodology mm. advance uh, at, um, uh, enhancements. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yes, but on I share your view, you know, like the, the raw data will become a commodity. Um, that everybody should be able to use the, you know, the, the cost of getting that data since, you know, there's, you know, regulation pushing so many non-listed companies into providing that is just growing exponentially for everybody, for data providers, the same as everybody else. Um, so coming together, building a communal solution for the raw data is probably the, the way to yeah. go. But then the real value, as you just indicated, yeah. lies in what are you doing with it? the enhancement of it, the putting it to, to context, you know, putting data into information and into insights, um, which you can action on. Um, I think this is kind of where the true value lies, um, you know, also for PwC as, you know, helping our customers with something mm -hmm. like that, but also MSCI and the others. So that's kind of, you know, the, the future that, that personally I see for data, but, but this is not about me here. Um, let's probably just, you know, like, um, since we're coming to an end of this, of this uh, podcast today, um, what are you guys working on at Metzler at the moment? So what are your priorities and how do you implement all of that in the future? Do you have good ideas um, mm. that I mean, uh, you can already the, share with the, us? The, the goal is obviously, like I said initially, to somehow streamline the, the financial goals with the sustainability goals. So we built a tool. So we have also a large mm -hmm. applied research team within our organizations who build up a risk model and um, we can mm -hmm. more from a kind of quantitative mm -hmm. uh, angle help clients even to become very restrictive right if you come to us today and say i want to have a 
portfolio, which is 1.5 degree compatible, we can use data and we would see that only mm -hmm. 10 or 20% of the universe as of today might be um, in a kind of a 1.5 degree um, pathway. But you still want to have a portfolio with certain financial mm -hmm. aspects like a high dividend yield, like exposure to small caps or value. So we can then optimize yeah. this kind of strategy mm -hmm. um, and even integrate our active um, stock picking skills. So let's say we we meet the companies, we have them on a watch list, we can give now the kind of optimization process, our topics where we are very, very have a good um, mm -hmm. view into the future and the development of their business model. And um, we met the management and then we combine it with the mm -hmm. kind of financial characteristics of this kind of model and the ESG framework. And then we put it together and have a strategy which is um, yeah, fit, fit, fit for purpose. And uh, this is um, something which should be becoming more and more as, as ESG requirements are increasing nearly on, on a monthly basis. So this is um, doing, this is a lot of fun. Um, and this is something we, we do with, with many clients more and more, especially also when you think about um, ESG regulatory standards. So many clients come to us and said, we have this and this kind of framework for the PIES, for example, for the principal adverse impact indicators, please tailor-made an ESG product for us, which is fitting into our kind of framework of ESG. And um, this is um, the bit of the future. Mm -hmm. So it's basically a very flexible approach, you know, where you um, take, you know, standardized uh, uh, you know, building blocks, which you then assemble in a way that the yeah. customer wants it. So it's it's getting away from, you know, the the portfolio that you would want to kind of, you know, sell to ideally, you know, tens, hundreds, if not thousands of customers. It's basically standardizing the portfolio components and then making a, a bespoke product for each and every one of your customers. Is, is that right? Exactly. That's the goal and that's the framework because um, the ESG preferences are so different within um, client groups and also really to have the connection um, to, to the financial goals, right? Um, it simply is hurting your performance if you do not have a diversified portfolio. And um, it's um, it can also hurt your portfolio if you are implementing ESG in a, in a wrong manner. And um, this is really the, the, the discipline you need to have and the, the kind of transparency you should do. So we mm -hmm. do kind of an X-ray of the portfolio mm -hmm. beforehand. And after the optimization, and then you would see your ESG credentials and you would also see your, your financial credentials of the strategy. That's amazing. Probably one last question, if I may. Um, sure. And, uh, um, you know, how about, you know, sustainable investing, you know, always talks about, you know, active uh, ownership, engagement, mm -hmm. proxy voting. Um, can you talk about this? How have you organized that at Metzler? Mm -hmm. Because in my own experience, you know, like proxy voting is something I'm not so sure about whether it's really helpful. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you know, when you look at stuff from Rob Bauer, you know, what he has done, you know, like uh, on, you know, the, the stuff that actually is on the agenda on an annual general meeting, sometimes it's not the contentious one. The mm -hmm. contentious ones have been taken off the agenda very often before it goes to the AGM. So then voting mm -hmm. on this, is that not something a little bit um, where people, you know, think this might be doing more than it actually does? That would be probably my first question. And then the second question is, um, then with the, um, you know, active engagement, you know, you, you speak to a lot of companies, are you mentioning what are your, ex, you know, expectations to the company and, and how do you measure whether they actually put this into place? Mm -hmm. 
So I think both both is very important in proxy voting and engagement. We have policies on both. We are very transparent. So you find on an annual basis a full report on our proxy vote. So you would pick up any company we are invested on and mm. you would see line by line and how we have voted on. Mm. And um, we, on the other hand, when it comes to engagement, we have a, a two-tiered strategy on the one hand. Um, we are kind of a... Um, middle class, I would say, asset manager in terms of size, right? So we mm -hmm. manage around 40 billion. And, mm -hmm. um, this means that we have a lot to say in, in some companies, for example, some small caps, but we do not have a lot of to say or a large stake in very large companies. Mm -hmm. So we, we need to focus on where we can really change something. And, um, we also publish, um, what we do, um, on an annual basis in, kind of, in terms of a kind of an engagement report. So mm -hmm. we have this kind of direct engagement of our portfolio managers together with, with my team. Mm -hmm. And um, on the other hand, we also want to ensure that our assets are being a part of a, a bigger uh, pot, you could say. So therefore, we mm -hmm. have an engagement overlay with a partner mm -hmm. where we have as of today more than 1,100 billion um, US assets in engaged. And uh, then we have a team who is taking all this kind of engaged assets and having conversations, let's say, with, with an Apple or Alphabet, where we as Metzler would not have or might not even get a meeting. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important, uh, and also what you mentioned, um, um, Andreas, to be very transparent on the impact you can have with both tools. Mm -hmm. Both are important. You need to be transparent, be transparent about what you do, but also about what is likely to being changed. Mm -hmm. And um, often um, there, are, there are many conversations and there's also a, a survey which I like a lot from the NKI, um, mm -hmm. Institute of Sustainability here, here in Germany. And um, the, the CEO actually did a, a survey amongst corporations and mm -hmm. asking them, is really engagement um, changing something? And around mm -hmm. 60 or 70% of CEOs or head of investor relations are saying yes, engagement with asset managers is changing our strategy and has an influence on the board in terms mm -hmm. of what kind of decisions they do, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there is an impact, but sometimes mm -hmm. difficult to measure, mm -hmm. um, but but it's important to do that. And uh, it's also out of something that we should do as a fiduciary duty because it helps us to do the better informed investment decisions. And mm -hmm. uh, one last point, there have also been cases where we have not invested in companies because our portfolio managers felt that we don't trust the management, right? So they are they are not responding to our questions in a in a, in a good manner. They mm. do not respond to our questions from a content perspective. So we have a mm. bad feeling, and often mm. it turns then out two or three years ahead that our, our gut feeling was right. That's also mm. an important effect of speaking to companies. And would you be interested in knowing how the kind of results have been or, you know, however you want to measure results, you know, like uh, you get a meeting when you want to talk about climate change or diversity issues or you don't get it or, um, you know, would you be interested in understanding, you know, what other fund managers, you know, experienced with the companies that you are looking at uh, to invest in? Is that something that you would be interested in? And if yes, is that something that is available? Mm. Um, I mean, via this kind of engagement overlay, we... We have an exchange where we frequently with, with the other investors, right? So there are insurance companies, pension funds, other as managers who mm -hmm. pool their assets. So we, we mm -hmm. speak with them, but we also have a, have a kind of a Salesforce database where we can see over the period of over 10 years where we see all meetings locked 
and we mm. have also milestones achieved. I mean, the biggest challenge is really to, to measure the success of engagement. Mm. And you can, can do this and we report on it. There are milestones uh, with a degree of one to three stars, you could say. And mm. there are smaller achievements like a company is reporting the, to carbon disclosure projects, but sometimes mm. there are even bigger milestones like a company has set uh, a science-based carbon reduction target. You mm. can always argue they would have done it anyhow, but yeah. there are still ways how to map your meetings letters uh, to, to the success. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating topic and it would probably warrant a separate, a separate conversation on this. So, so um, I really enjoyed talking to you as always. Um, so I guess we can leave it here and, uh, Thank you so much for your time. It was a great pleasure. Um, you're doing great work. Um, and I feel uh, there needs to be more Daniels around um, in order to push this forward. So thank you so much for everything that you do. Thank you, Andy, for having me and looking forward to the next meeting. This is the end of today's episode. But stay tuned. Many more interesting topics are yet to come. And don't forget to hit the follow button to never miss a new and exciting episode of our podcast, Important Problems.